Listening to Condé Nast Traveler's podcast, Women Who Travel, you will be transported to the ancient ruins of Pompeii, to New York City's most storied neighborhoods, and to the jaw-dropping peaks of Bhutan. It's the best of what you love about traveling, experiencing different people, cultures, and perspectives, all from the comfort of your own home. Each week, join host and global journalist Lali Alikoglu as she shares her own experiences along with those of self-identifying women travelers from all over the globe. How do the bestie comedian pairs of Sheer Zamata and Nicole Byer navigate travel together? What can you realistically expect from your first global solo travel experience? How is dance used as a tool for healing in Indigenous Australian communities? If these questions piqued your interest, pack your bags and go on a journey with women who travel. Available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Soul Curriculum, the companion show to meditative story where we reconnect with our storytellers in a deeper conversation, revealing the inner wisdom they shared. In this show, together, we replay moments of reflection and transformations, which you can apply to your own life. Who doesn't know what it feels like to struggle with something, to resist asking for help? because admitting that level of vulnerability is scary. It takes real guts to admit that actually, everything is not okay. And that sometimes, what we really need is a helping hand. It's this struggle to be open about his own needs that Alex Morris recounts in his meditative story. Alex had been hiding the limitations of his eyesight for most of his life, not wanting others to know that his poor vision and night blindness meant he couldn't always do the same things as his peers without assistance. But when Alex finds the courage to voice his need for support, he widens his world in the process. Let's listen. Hi, Alex. How are you? Great to have you in Soul Curriculum. Thank you so much for having me, Rohan. This is so fun. In your meditative story episode, you told us about how it took a long time for you to be open with others about your eyesight. What's it been like to be fully out there with your story now? It has only honestly reinforced the principle that people will surprise you with their empathy and their warmth when you let them in. I have completely found that with the episode being released. Hey, that's so great to hear that's been the case. And based on what you've learned, if you could pass any wisdom to your younger self, what would that be? I think, honestly, I think I would have wanted to reassure him that asking for help doesn't make you weak if anything it takes so much more confidence to ask for help I could have saved so much time and I probably could have learnt Mandarin if I could have just had any of that time back but yeah (laughs) sure sure and your meditative story explores what it's meant for you to live with what you used to call bad eyes and night blindness. And also it's about your struggle to prove to others that you weren't in need of help. It's ultimately a losing battle that becomes all the harder when you learn of a long-kept secret from your parents. Let's listen. I'm home for the summer after graduation. My parents asked to talk to me in the kitchen. They've made a pot of tea. Something serious is happening. They tell me there is a name for what's been going on with my eyes. It's called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. And I was actually diagnosed when I was six. Alexander, they said you would be fully blind by the time you were 12, but that didn't happen, my dad says. 
I have a form of RP that causes my eyes to deteriorate more slowly. I'll likely be fully blind by my 40s. The news hits me hard. Fully blind in my 40s? I've spent so long trying to hide this from people, pretending nothing is wrong. But I won't be able to hide that. My parents explain in more detail. My tea goes cold. I could resent them from keeping this from me, but I look at the love and concern in their faces. I don't hold anything against them. They wanted to give me this time just to be a kid. And looking back, I can see how much they protected me. Always handled me with care. I've been wrapped in bubble wrap for 20 years and I internalized that. Even now as an adult, I bubble wrap myself. I avoid going to certain places. I isolate myself because that's how I can stay safe. So Alex, this really tough and unexpected conversation with your parents confronted you with the reality that your condition was becoming harder to hide. I'm wondering, now that you had this formal diagnosis, a name for it, did having this label change your thinking at all with regards to asking for help? It definitely helped having a name for it because I was still using terminology that my parents were telling me when I was five years old, where I was still saying, yeah, I have this spelling mistake in my eye. That was how they wanted to articulate it to me when I was a kid, rather than saying there's a gene issue in your retina. And so I think it really helped having something that felt more formal. But I don't know how much I really wanted to wrestle with it or consider it. And I think I was completely numb to it and I didn't really want to talk about it for a long time. You interpreted the decision of your parents as wanting you to just have the time to be a kid. And what would you say to anyone who might be struggling to understand such a choice or action? I find it insane that my parents had to have 15 years of knowing this and constantly watching me and trying to notice differences in my eyesight. And I just think it's so crazy to think that we were just on two different worlds. And it's taught me that there are things that can be kinder to someone in a long-term sense than sharing that short-term honesty. I just would have done the exact same thing in my parents' shoes now that I think about it. Despite the knowledge that you have from your parents now about your condition, my sense is that the muscle memory from a lifetime of convincing others you don't need help is hard to break. As we hear in this next moment from your story, where despite the potential danger you were in, you felt unable to reach out to those around you. One summer night, a group of us head to a bar in town. I'm standing towards the back of the group. Everyone heads inside, but the bouncer puts out his hand to block my entry. You can't come in here wearing shorts, mate. No shorts? This isn't even a nice place, I argue. He doesn't budge. My friends disappear upstairs. They forget I'm back here. My phone is dead. What am I going to do? I begin the trek home. I creep along the sides of buildings, run my hands along the brick facades... I stand at a crosswalk for ages, listening for bikes and cars. It's stressful, dangerous. A truck can hit me at any moment. I'd never see it coming. I hear a group of lads having a night out approach. I stop, take out my phone, and pretend to be looking at something intently. I hope they don't notice how panicked I am. I've done this since childhood. I do an impression of someone having a good time. 
The thought of asking anyone for help never occurs to me. They pass me by without a second thought, and I'm left alone again, standing in the dark. You talked before about vulnerability and being vulnerable. What do you think is at the heart of that fear you might open yourself up to? I think the fear of opening up was always solely about being a burden. Even though I know I can just put my hand on somebody's shoulder and they can help me through the bar or the pub, I just didn't want to be anyone's baggage for the night. If I was starting a relationship or a friendship, I was thinking, I want to go as long as possible not telling you about my eyes because I want as long as possible that you don't see me as baggage. That fear has only been dispelled again and again, yet it's crazy how strong it held. I think that was what drove me so often to not say anything. And eventually, Alex, obviously you pushed through that fear. What helped you do that? The longer your relationships with people, the more you see where you can then help them in return in other ways. It doesn't have to be a one-way relationship of now that we're friends, you're just my carer. There are a thousand other ways that I can help you in the way that you help me that isn't about leading you places. That's what gave me the long-term confidence that people in my life that I love are going to stick with me. Alex, that's such an important insight. Thank you. And in another moment from your meditative story, it's personal frustration, isn't it, that provides the catalyst for changing your attitude towards reaching out for support. Let's listen. I'm standing at a bus stop in Los Angeles. The bus isn't coming. I've learnt this is common. It's a driving city. But because of my eyes, I can't drive. Across the street, I see a white van come to a stop. In big letters on the side, it says, Dial a ride. The van door opens, and an elderly woman with a walker slowly exits with a wave to the driver. I find myself feeling... jealous. That's the kind of service I want and need. That night, I searched Dial-A-Ride online. It's a service operated by the city to provide transportations for the elderly and the disabled. And I catch myself, if I do this, if I apply for this service, it'll be the first time I identify as disabled. The first time I stop pretending. The first time I proactively ask for help. Standing by the front window of our apartment, I see the dial-a-ride van pull up to the curb. It's bigger than I remember, and now I see the words senior and disabled emblazoned on the side. Not exactly subtle. The van driver nods and smiles. She doesn't ask me about my eyes. She's not here to judge. She's just here to help. Inside the van, I'm the youngest passenger by about 50 years. I'm also the least confident. My elder seatmates don't hesitate to ask for help. They ask the driver to slow down, to give them directions, to help them out of the van, anything. They know their limitations, but they still have things they want to do. They're part of a community, a network of people that are there to help each other. 
This is still new for me. I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to stumble as I get more comfortable with asking for help. But by signing up to this bus, I'm for the first time making my world bigger instead of smaller. I love how it was, I guess, a small, everyday event, missing a bus in LA, that led to a change in how ultimately you chose to identify and evolve. Alex, how did it feel when you eventually took that leap to say, yes, I am someone who needs support? It felt not only scary for what I was admitting to myself, but also I think it's such an intense fear of judgment, which then already is somebody who, in a lot of situations, cannot be the most confident Knowing that there's any eyes on you to kind of be analysing you, you're like, my worst fear has come true. That's why a lot of people that have the condition that I have carry around a cane. It isn't actually for them to help them. It's as a sign to other people. It is meant to be for you so that if I bump into your table and I knock over a drink, you don't stand up wanting to fight me. You are like, oh, you're blind. I can see the cane. I know why you did it. I feel like if I'm my full evolved self, I think I need the cane and I don't know if I'm emotionally there even yet, but I think I need it. There's that perception you had, isn't there? That fear of asking for help. So how did it feel to finally push through that barrier when you got on that bus? What's waiting on the other side, if you like, of being brave enough to ask for help? It felt like such a safe space and a safe space that I'd never been in and I didn't know I needed. It feels really good to go there and be like, I'm not putting on any airs. It feels like a genuine give and take of what I need help with versus what I could help other people with. Because I can help somebody else on the bus put in their belt, but they can say if I'm too close to the curb or if I'll trip. I just don't think that the term burden even exists in that airspace. In the final moment from your meditative story, we see how your new approach is helping to widen your world. Let's listen. My shoes scuff against the cement floor as I push my way through a teeming crowd of strangers. I'm in an arena in downtown LA about to see one of my favorite musicians perform, Kendrick Lamar. And I'm here by myself. This is something I never would have done years ago. And if I'm honest, I've been nervous about it all day. But I'm here. Now I just need to find my seat. As I ascend the ramp into the darkened interior of the arena, I watch the details of the room fade into blackness and quickly glance around until I see what I need, the usher. Hi, I say to her. Uh, I'm partially sighted. Can you help me get to my seat? She hardly gives me a glance before saying, Sure. With my hand on the shoulder of the usher, I know that everyone can see me, see that I need help. But for the first time, I don't care. This is saving me precious minutes of anxious stumbling and trying to bluff my way through the darkened aisles. If I want to enjoy myself... I'm going to have to be honest and vulnerable. Once at my seat, I have a little area all to myself. I put my anxiety aside and dance. 
I scream the lyrics along with the faceless crowd surrounding me. I have so much fun. It's one of the best nights I've had in years. My experience may not look like everyone else's, but that's okay. This is my own way of doing things, and it's just as satisfying. I myself just missed Kendrick playing in Glasgow recently, so I'm glad you got the chance to enjoy him. And what struck me most about this moment, though, is how proactive you were about asking for help and being open, open about your partial sightedness. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think that's so true. And I think those conditions, what I've learned is how much that can be a shorthand. And I think I always misunderstood that. I think I thought it was then going to have to be a conversation what I actually see versus what I don't see. And I'm like, especially when you're just talking to like an usher, I'm like, that's just one of the things on their job list to do within the hour. They just want to help you. And I think going on the dial ride made me embrace a side of myself that allowed me to feel more confident and free to break through that barrier and be able to go on my own. The freedom to go on your own. I love it, Alex. A great ending thought. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much. This was great. It was so great to speak to Alex again, to remind myself about his journey. How his response to diminishing vision in many ways dictated his experience and feelings. When masking the reality, he felt detached and as if his world was rapidly shrinking but with the courage to embrace his situation, to ask for the help he needed, his world instantly widened. He was able to connect in ways he wasn't before, to have new and exciting experiences, and to even support others in the same way they were supporting him. Maybe before we meet again, you could try to do something similar yourself taking the leap to voice a small vulnerability to a friend or a loved one. Shaping it in a way that allows another to help you solve a problem or talk through an anxiety. You might find, like Alex, that through the empathy of others, a vulnerability might evolve into an opportunity for growth. That's all for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on all your social media platforms via our handle at Meditative Story. Or you can email us at hello at meditativestory.com. Take care now. On behalf of the team at Meditative Story, thank you for spending time with us today. We love creating the show for you. And if the show serves you in a meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. Would you take a minute right now to write us a review in your podcast app. When you leave a review, it really inspires our team. And we're a group who derives so much energy from understanding how meditative story impacts you. It's also a way for you to pay it forward by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, we'd really appreciate it. Soul Curriculum is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are Darren Triff, June Cohen, and Rebecca Grierson. 
Jay Punjabi is our supervising producer. The series is produced by Ben Wyatt and Dorothy Abrams. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday. Our scriptwriters are Hannah Brencher, Marie McCoy-Thompson, Dan Neelan, and Florence Williams. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tata, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Sami Oputa, Leah Saramettis, Colin Howarth, Chineme Ezequena, Charlie Menezes, Alfonso Bravo, Brad Whirl, and Adam Heiner. And I'm Rohan Gunatilaka, creator of the Buddhify Meditation app and your host. Visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode. Thank you.